if you still are holding the Sabbath in one hand and soy meat in the other, please read Galatians and know that God is asking you to trust Jesus. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Well, Nikki, today we're starting Chapter 5 of Galatians. It's been a longer journey through this book than I had anticipated. Yeah. And I feel like it's almost new. I mean, I've read this book, we've studied this book, but it's new this time. (laughs) So chapter five is beginning what many people say is the third section of the book of Galatians. The first two chapters were personal. Paul recounts his authority to be an apostle. He talks about his experience with Peter when Peter refused to eat with the Gentile believers and he had to call him out in public. The second two chapters, three and four, are doctrinal where Paul explains that there's no place in the New Covenant for the law as a requirement for Christians. And further, Paul explains that Sinai, with its fiery judgment and tables of stone, are represented by Hagar the slave and her son Ishmael, and they produce children of slavery. But Sarah and the heavenly Jerusalem represent freedom and the new covenant, and they produce children of promise, like Isaac, who inherit God's promises. So, chapters 3 and 4 explain how justification is completely separate from law. And I don't think we can ever stress that too much to the people who come out of our common background of Adventism. We are justified through faith on the basis of God's promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When we have faith in Jesus and God's provision for us, then we are justified. On this side of the cross, that faith includes trusting Jesus' atonement accomplished by His shed blood and His resurrection, breaking the curse of death. And now, in chapter 5, Paul begins his final section on how to live in the new covenant. This section is going to discuss the reality of sanctification once we have been justified. And that's a big deal for people with an Adventist background, because Adventism puts sanctification and justification into the same envelope. You can't separate them from each other, and both are required for salvation. But Scripture tells us we're justified and completely saved and given eternal life, born again, and then we are sanctified by the Spirit as we learn to walk with Him in trust and faith. So, they're separate, and sanctification is the fruit of salvation instead of the means. So, he's going to explain that. But before we go farther into this, um, I want to remind you all that we love hearing from you. We love your questions and your emails and your reactions. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can go to proclamationmagazine.com, and there you can sign up for our weekly proclamation newsletter email. You can find our online articles and magazines, as well as links to this podcast and to our former Adventist YouTube channel. And you can also donate there using the Donate tab. Please remember to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts, because it does help the expansion of this podcast and its reach. And now, Nikki, before we talk about sanctification, 
I have a question. Okay. As an Adventist, did you consider yourself to be a legalist? Not at all. No. I probably was the most committed to Adventism as a young adult in Southern California. I feel like I don't need to say a lot more because (laughs) most Adventists understand that Adventism in Southern California is very different from the Adventism across the country and in other parts of the world. Yeah. But even within Southern California, I was among, I want to say the more liberal, but I, I have to give a context because today the more liberal Adventist is further liberal than I was at that Mm -hmm. time. But Sabbath was a gift. I could go to a restaurant. I could go shopping. I could practice it however I felt convicted to. And and that word convicted really wasn't (laughs) about conviction. It was, what do you want? Interesting. Yeah. Um, So I felt like grace offered me a lot of room in the expression of my faith. (laughs) That's interesting. And so, no, I I didn't think I was a legalist at all, but a hundred percent, I believed that as a Christian, it was my responsibility to keep and uphold the 10 commandments as I was convicted to. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps one of the deep cores of redefinition mm-hmm. that defines Adventism and sets it apart from a biblical understanding of salvation. Yeah, and I definitely did believe that I had a part to play in getting and maintaining my salvation. What about you, though? Well, I would have been the same. I did not believe I was a legalist. I heard Christians talking about keeping the commandments being legalism, mm-hmm. and internally, I would feel very defensive. I felt like arguing, like, no. I am not a legalist. I do not keep the Sabbath legalistically. I keep the Sabbath because (laughs) I love God. And I want everybody to know that I love God, so I'm going to do what He says. And I just completely divorced it in my head from a legal requirement, which is invalid because the only place the Sabbath is commanded is in the Ten Commandments. Mm. But Adventism sort of covered that because they said the Ten Commandments were eternal. Mm -hmm. They were not the law of Moses. They could be lifted out of the Mosaic Covenant and dropped into any other covenant or any other framework because, of course, they're eternal. And they say that God either established or gave the Sabbath Sabbath at creation. True. So that wasn't even part of the law. So they believe that that's something that was given to all of humanity. And I want to say to them, chapter and verse, please. Yeah. You know, there's the creation story where God rested on the seventh day, but there is no command for anybody to keep it. And there's no record of anyone keeping it until Exodus 16, mm-hmm. which is a month before Sinai, when God gave the manna and the Sabbath, the symbols of the bread of life and rest in Christ together because they functioned together. His provision for them was that he provided manna on the Sabbath if they collected double on Friday, but any other day and that whole double day would rot. Mm -hmm. And that was only for Israel. That wasn't for everybody. That was only Israel in the wilderness where they didn't have enough food. Mm -hmm. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm still kind of amazed that in the book of Joshua, it tells that when they entered the land and produced their first harvest, the manna stopped. And I was thinking how amazing it would have been to have been born during those 40 years of manna to grow up never knowing life without manna. And suddenly there's no manna, but you now have the crops in the land of Canaan. Talk about food issues. (laughs) 
yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> hey, I'm a texture person, so I imagine what that must have been like for some of those kiddos. <laughs> oh, yes. Give them lots of milk and honey. <laughs> well, in Galatians 5, 1 to 6, Paul is going to begin talking about walking by the Spirit, and he's going to contrast it with taking up the law. And, you know, as we've already recounted, he's made a very big deal about not going back and picking up the law once you've known the gospel. This is continuing to be an issue with the people that write to us. On Facebook and in emails, I get letters, I see comments about Galatians just really being about circumcision. It's not about the law. Or Galatians not saying that you don't keep the Sabbath. Sabbath isn't in there. How can you get this? And I want to say, Nikki, we have to discuss what the law actually is. Yeah. What is the law? What's the law of Moses? And what's the law of God? The law of God is everything he's revealed in the Bible. It's all of scripture. And the law of Moses was a very specific law that God gave to Moses for the people of Israel. And it contains more than just 10 commandments. Yeah, there are 613 commandments in the law of Moses, including the 10. So when people say to me, the Ten Commandments are eternal, they were in heaven before Sinai, what do you say when people say that, Nikki? Well, now I would say go listen to our podcast on the 28 (laughs) Fundamental Beliefs, and don't forget to start with the introduction. That came from Ellen. That was completely fabricated by Ellen White and her visions and has no basis in Scripture. There is none. Mm -mm. Not at all. If people say, then how do we know? what morality and righteousness are, because the Bible says sin is the transgression of the law. In fact, just yesterday I read a quote from Ellen White that said, if there were no law, there would be no way to know what sin is, because that's the only definition of sin that's in the Bible. No, it's not. No, it's not. What other definitions of sin do you know? Well, I know offhand in the epistle of James, he says sin is all wrongdoing. And we also know in the book of Genesis that God said, if you eat the fruit, you will die. Now that's sin, Mm -hmm. eating the fruit when God says don't eat the fruit. So for Ellen to say there's no definition of sin except for the Ten Commandments and the fact that Romans says sin is the transgression of the law, and that John also iterates something on that same order, she says that's the only definition of sin, and it's just not true. Mm-mm. I'm realizing, as we've been going through this book of Galatians this time, just how thoroughly Ellen White's paradigm shaped how Adventism teaches the law. And it's not even something that, in my experience, was bolstered by quotes from Ellen White. I was given a convoluted set of structural almost like an Adventist, it wasn't a catechism, but I was given an Adventist formula for how to understand the law and the will of God. And it all centered on the Ten Commandments. It began with them and it moved backwards into eternity past and forwards into eternity future. And it was like the Ten Commandments were the one thing that never changed. God never changes, so the law can't change. If it never changes, and if it's eternal with God, then the law, whatever those 10 things are, have to be eternal, and they have to be there with God on the throne. Mm -hmm. But that's not true. God alone is immortal and eternal, and He is moral. He is righteous. The Righteous is the term the Bible uses for Him. So, Any righteousness that is reflected in man is coming from him who created us in his image. And one more thing I want to say before we move into our chapter, 
The idea that the Ten Commandments are not part of the law of Moses is entirely fabricated. The law is a unit. It cannot be divided. You cannot take 10 of the commandments out and leave the other 603. The rest of the 603 commandments explain how the 10 are to be kept. And, in fact, Exodus 34, 27, and 28 identifies the Ten Commandments as the actual essence of the Mosaic Covenant. This is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus. That's not even Paul, whom Adventists sometimes depreciate because he clearly teaches that the righteousness of Christ has fulfilled and supplanted the law in the life of believers. But Exodus declares it. And then we move forward to the New Testament, and in 2 Corinthians 3, we learn the Old Covenant is a ministry of death in letters engraved on stone. We can't separate the Ten Commandments from the Mosaic Covenant. All of the Mosaic Covenant is the law of Moses. And I always want to point this out because of the argument that my father-in-law used to make, and I know it wasn't just him, a lot of Adventists do. The Ten Commandments were inside the Ark. So they're separate from the Mosaic Covenant. They're not the same thing. But in Hebrews, in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews tells us that the Old Covenant is obsolete and fading away. And then in chapter 9, he begins to talk about the things that were a part of that first covenant. And in verse 4, he describes the ark. He speaks of the Holy of Holies and he says, Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Those tablets containing the Ten Commandments, which were inside the Ark, are a part of the first covenant that has just been called obsolete. No wonder Hebrews confused and upset me as an Adventist. I could not make Hebrews work with what I believed was truth, and that I believed was Adventism. Mm -hmm. Didn't work. So yes, the Ten Commandments are part of the Law of Moses, and they are part of the Old Covenant. And the argument that they can't be part of the law of Moses because they were written with the finger of God on stone. Stone is not eternal. We know from Peter, for one, that the stone of this world is going to be melted as with fervent heat one day, the heavens will be rolled back, and all the elements of earth will be melted before a new heaven and a new earth are brought into existence. Stone is not eternal. And by the way, 2 Corinthians 3 makes it really clear that the covenant of death was written on stone. The covenant of the Spirit is written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It's completely different. Stone is not eternal. God's finger writing on stone was for the purpose of revealing to Israel who he was. It was not for the purpose of saying, these 10 are eternal with me. He is eternal. Righteousness is in him. And that argument is just ridiculous too, because 
God fashioned Adam with his own hands from the dust of the ground, but they're the first to tell you, oh, no, no, you don't go to be with the Lord when you die. Only God can be immortal. That's true. You cease to exist. But God did that with his own hands, so the argument doesn't translate. That's a very good point. I'd never thought of that. I guess the counter to that would be, well, he didn't fashion Adam out of stone. But (laughs) Ezekiel does call the human heart a heart of stone, which God will replace with a heart of flesh when he wipes away our sin and gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Mm -hmm. So just saying, stone is not eternal. Whether it's the heart of stone or the tablets of stone, God is eternal and he gives us eternal life when he puts his spirit in us and gives us a heart of flesh that trusts him and knows him and loves him. And you know, Colleen, our passage today is going to deal with the question of the Sabbath, but Galatians doesn't talk about the Sabbath. Well, we're going to see Paul tell us that the Sabbath is contained in this discussion. Absolutely. Would you read our passage for us, please? This is Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. This is an amazing passage. I remember years ago when our oldest son was a junior in high school, he had to see an orthopedist, and the orthopedist turned out to be a Christian. I didn't know that he wasn't Adventist until I asked, and he came into the exam room wearing a tie that had Galatians 5.1 written (laughs) out on it, for it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. It was an indelible moment because we were very freshly out of Adventism. So, Nikki, what is Paul saying? What does he mean? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. What freedom? What's he set us free from in the context of what we've been studying? Well, he has just discussed Sarah and Hagar and the fact that Hagar represented those who were kept in slavery and bondage under the law. But he refers to Sarah as being like Jerusalem. And he says, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And we are children of promise. We're free from the law. We're free from the bondage of the law. He's reminding the Galatians, this was not how you came to faith. And when it says that we are children of promise, what is the promise? What promises are we children of in the context of his argument? Well, God made a promise to Abraham that through him, he would bless the nations. And we inherit that promise when we believe God like Abraham did. And believe what he reveals to us and asks us to trust, which is on this side of the cross, what? The Lord Jesus. Absolutely. It's an amazing thing. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Free from what? The law of sin. The law of sin and the law of death. Mm -hmm. And then he says, Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That's plain on the surface, right? Don't be subject to a yoke of slavery. Stand in freedom. Christians are free. And then we get asked, so now you're free to go out and cheat and steal and commit adultery and eat ham sandwiches? And we say, no. Why? (laughs) How are we free if we're not free to go sin? 
what is he saying here? Well, we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. We've been bought by the Lord himself, and he's freed us from the law of sin and death. He's freed us from the curse of the law and from eternal damnation. He's made us his own, and he's given us a new life. And now we walk in the light of that. And frankly, we do so as bondservants to Christ. Yes. From gratitude. All of this was to glorify God. It was all about glorifying the Son. And that's what we are. We're instruments now to glorify Him. Yes. You know, I missed that part, really. I did as an Adventist. I didn't understand how thoroughly our freedom in Christ, freedom from the curse of the law, was for God's glory. Mm Mm-hmm did not occur to me. And it did not occur to me. I had no way to even put together when Paul talked about being a bondservant of Christ. Yes, that was a nice metaphor. I think I know what he means. But it didn't occur to me that this is all to God's glory, and that's not narcissistic of God. No, and it's not hard to give Him glory on this side of the cross. And after being born again, it's not a matter of, oh, okay, I'm supposed to do this now. This is my job. This is how I show Him that I love Him. That's not it. Our affections are changed and moved toward Him. We love Him and we praise Him and we recognize Him in our life, His provision, His compassion and His mercy and His sovereignty. It, yeah. it is all around us all the time and we can't help but glorify Him because He gives us a new heart and He puts His Spirit in us who is teaching us to call Him Abba. Yes. And you know, I love that verse in the Old Testament that says, the seen eye and the hearing ear, the Lord has made them both. And when we're born again, He gives us eyes to see Him at work. He gives us ears to hear His voice, and He gives us His Word to guide our life. So no, we're not going out and doing ridiculous things, although I love ham sandwiches. (laughs) So do I. But I give God glory for my ham sandwiches. And I thank him for that pig. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, what you just said reminds me of this amazing passage in 2 Corinthians 4, the continuation of his exposition of the new covenant. Paul says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, this is so vivid. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And get this, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So even our commitment to Jesus, who gives us the work he prepared for us from the beginning, which is spreading the word of him, that's making us bondservants to those to whom we are teaching this truth, and that's all for God's glory. And then he goes on and says, and I thought this was such an interesting thing, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I thought, wow, what God has done as he's shown the light of truth in our hearts, it doesn't just say he's shown the light of the glory of God. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So he helps us know who Jesus is. It's not just a spiritual, you know, I saw a light and now I know. He shows us the truth. Part of showing us the truth, I never know how to talk about this. I really like the word effectual because uh-huh. It conveys that he's at work on both ends. He's showing us the truth at the same time that he's 
working in our hearts and in our minds to be able to receive that and to see it. Because this scripture has been before my eyes from the time I was in early elementary. I remember trying to read the Bible once when I was like in first grade and I fell asleep in Genesis (laughs) 2. But I've always had the scriptures in front of me. It wasn't until the fullness of his time for my life that he gave me eyes to see and to be able to understand what was in front of me. And that's why it's so important that we approach scripture humbly and we pray and we ask him, show me what I need to know. And then we have to be willing to see it. Nikki, you talked to me a little when we were preparing for this podcast about this word yoke in verse one. And don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Can you talk about the significance of that? in the context that Paul is writing to the Galatians who are being tempted by the Judaizers? Yeah, well, the the Jews often referred to the law as a yoke. And I don't know if I'll be able to explain this right. You can help me. But a yoke was something that was placed on two oxen so that they could pull the plow together and walk together. And so the yoke of the law was to help the Jews walk according to God's way. And so Paul referencing the yoke is like referencing the law. Yeah. And I absolutely love this passage in Matthew chapter 11. This follows Jesus rebuking the Pharisees and the people in leadership at that time who were rejecting him. And he says, beginning in verse 25, immediately after he's gone on and on rebuking them, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. We have this sovereign choice of God to open the eyes of the blind and to reveal the Son, the Father, to these people. But then we have this general call. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you think of a yoke, like the oxen wear, Mm -hmm. you cannot wear two yoke. That is so true. They had to take off the yoke of the law to place on the yoke of Christ. And this is Jesus basically saying, listen up, you guys. You have had the law, which God gave you, to point to me. I am here. (laughs) Take off the law because I am fulfilling the law and I personally will be the yoke that you will be bound to. And I will give you rest. The yoke only gave you a curse. And I imagine how scary that must have been for them. I I know how frightened I was when I was confronted with the idea of giving up the Sabbath to trust Jesus. It was so strange after growing up my whole life believing that in order to be faithful to Christ, I had to keep the Sabbath according to the Jewish custom, only we were really wishy-washy on that. Right. The idea that I had to give up working, to give up my efforts in order to place my trust in the work of Christ, that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's really what he's telling them. Yes, it is. He's, he's condemning the Pharisees who continue to seek to work to please God in the face of rejecting the Messiah. And he's telling them, you need to take my yoke upon you. It makes me think of Hebrews chapter four, which the Adventists like to use to say, see, there's still a Sabbath. <sighs> yes. But beginning in verse 10, the author writes, for the one who has entered his rest... 
God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience, the disobedience of unbelief in the context of Hebrews 3 and 4. And that striving to enter rest didn't make sense to me until I was leaving Adventism and I realized it's a battle of the pride of man to give up your works, the thing that you think you have control over in order to gain salvation or in favor with God, you have to strive to give that up and to trust Christ alone. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And here's Paul coming along in Galatians 5 and saying the same thing in even more accusing, if you want to say that, in even more stark terms. He says in verse 2, behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And then in verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. There's the Sabbath. Don't miss that. Yeah. There's the Sabbath. Now, here's one of those places where Adventists will say, well, see, that's just circumcision. What's the connection between circumcision and the law? It's the entrance. You're not even allowed to keep the Jewish law unless you're circumcised. Circumcision was the way a Gentile became a Jew. If a Gentile decided they wanted to follow Yahweh and worship the God of the universe with the Jews, they were not allowed to keep the law until they became circumcised. So, when the Judaizers are here harassing the Galatians and saying, you have to be circumcised, what they're saying is, you have to come under the law of Moses. You have to actually become Jewish in order to be a full son of God. That was the issue back in chapter 2, where Paul had to rebuke Peter. Now, Peter knew that wasn't true. He'd been given the vision of the sheet. He brought Cornelius and his household to faith. But the circumcision party, the Judaizers who had come, were so shaming and so manipulative and so twisting of the word that they were convincing people that to give up the law was somehow immoral. And they were putting that wall of the law back up between the Jewish and the Gentile believers, and even Peter succumbed to the emotional and social pressure. And Paul had to rebuke him because that was sin. So here Paul is saying, you can't do this. If you put yourself under the law in any sense, even for one law out of the 613, you are obligated to obey the whole law, and there is no grace in law. The argument that this is just about circumcision is just completely disconnected from the entire letter. Yeah. Peter wasn't rebuked because he was choosing to go get circumcised. No. He already was. He was a Jew. He was rebuked because he was falling into the customs of eating separate from the Gentiles. He was being pressured to keep different aspects of the law. Yeah. Same Judaizers, same letter, same issue. Circumcision is entrance. And you know, if in fact the Adventists believe that this is just talking about circumcision, I want to know why they circumcise babies at their hospitals. (laughs) Right. What significance does that have? I grew up learning that circumcision no longer had a spiritual meaning. Well, you tell that to any Jew, they will at least say it has an ethnic meaning for them. So that's a really good question. How do you pick and choose when circumcision is okay and when it isn't? Mm -hmm. 
So the issue here is what circumcision represented to these people. It represented the law. It represented putting yourself under the demands of the law. Now, I found the great example of this whole idea of the law being 100% demanding, 100% legal, 100% just with no grace. In McGee's commentary on this passage, J. Vernon McGee, he tells the story of going out very early one Sunday morning in his car, driving streets he knew well, coming to an intersection where nobody was out, and there was a stop sign and nobody was there. And he slowed way down and rolled through the stop sign, went to the other side of the intersection, and bam, there was the policeman (laughs) who said, do you know what you did? He goes, yes, I rolled through that stop sign because nobody was there. Nobody was in danger. And the policeman, he said, proceeded to give him a lecture on law. The stop sign is there. It is a legal requirement that you stop whether anybody is there or not, whether it makes sense or not, or whether you can even justify going through that intersection or not. It requires you to stop. Do you understand? And McGee said, I I agreed I did. And he said, do you agree that you have to stop when you come to a stop sign, do you agree with my pulling you over? And McGee said, I responded, I agree with everything except one thing. And the policeman said to him, what's that? And he said, I don't think I deserve this ticket because nobody was there. And the policeman, stepping outside of law, to be honest, said to him, I'll let you off this time, but you have no permission to ever do this again. You must stop. And McGee said, that's law. Law does not give you an excuse. You are under the penalty of the law the minute you put yourself under any part of it. And that's because law has no grace. Not even if you can explain from a logical position why the law didn't apply to you. So that's what Paul is saying. Anything, if you put yourself under the Sabbath law, because that's the fourth commandment, you are obligated to the entire law, including the curse of death, for breaking any of the laws. It's like changing your citizenship. It is. If you move to the United States from, say, Canada, and you become a citizen here, you don't get to choose which laws you're going to keep and which ones are no longer for you. And Canada and the United States have a lot of overlapping requirements. Mm -hmm. Both laws have restrictions against murder, against burglary, and so forth. But if you break them in your country, you are punished by the laws of your country. You are not responsible to the laws of the country that isn't yours. And that's the point that Paul is making here. As Christians under the new covenant in Christ, we are no longer obligated to the law that God gave to Israel. And you can't take any portion of that law out of the whole and say, I'll keep this one for me and bring it along in my Christian experience. Because you're under a different law now. You have a different priesthood and you can't pick and choose, mix and match. Mm -hmm. So Nikki, in verse four, where Paul says, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. What does he mean? That's a tough verse. I had to think it through. And coming from my background as an Adventist, it was especially hard to think through. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that I know exactly what he meant, but I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and it made me think of a few different things. Severed from Christ reminded me of a pastor who was talking about what happens when Christians extend the right hand of fellowship to somebody who's believing a false gospel. And he says, when you do that, you cut them off from the gospel. 
So when I think of these people leaving the gospel of Christ to go and seek justification through the law, they're cutting themselves off from the way, the truth, and the life. You can't walk together in Christ with all of that and seek to be justified by the law. I don't see him saying this is a permanent thing. If they continue, obviously, to seek justification through the law, then they're not believing unto salvation. But I don't believe this means you can't repent and come back to Christ. I don't think that's what this is saying. And I also don't think that anyone who is seeking to be justified by the law has saving faith to begin with, because you can't truly believe that Jesus did it all and also believe that you have to do anything I don't think that those are compatible. I think there are people here who were temporarily persuaded by Paul, Mm -hmm. and they gave a profession of belief because it made sense at the time. But then these other people come along, and now that's being tested. Did they really believe it? Did they really stand on that conviction and, and put the full weight of their life in it because they knew it was true? Well, if they did, they would reject what the Judaizers were saying because they'd know. No, that's not right. But if they were only temporarily persuaded by Paul, I don't think they had that saving faith to begin with. I think that what Paul is doing here is he's dealing with people who never really truly came to faith. And he's telling them, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. You've cut yourself off from the way, the truth, and the life. This is not the way of salvation. I think a lot of commentators would agree with you. I did listen to a sermon on this passage by S. Lewis Johnson, who who said essentially what you're saying. He said, you cannot lose your salvation if you've truly been born again. The Bible is very clear about that. But he said, people who are believers can be seduced into law-keeping. They can be deceived. And he said, they can fall away from, as he put it, the grace way of salvation. And I would say, they've taken themselves out of relating directly to Christ, and they've put the law between themselves and the fulfillment of the law. So, they're answering to the law instead of to the one who has already fulfilled it and already purchased their salvation. And our Pastor Gary has said about this, many people think and I think I would include most Adventists with this, that if you fall into sin, you fall from grace. We were taught in Adventism that if we sinned, we would lose our salvation and we would have to repent and come back. And if it was bad enough, we'd have to be rebaptized. It's like in, out, in, out. You can be in and out several times a day, at least several times a week if you fall into sin. But he said, no, in the Christian life, if you sin, And we know from Romans 7 that Christians will sin because we still have mortal bodies with a law of sin in the flesh. He said, if you fall into sin, you do not fall from grace. You're still in Christ. But if you turn back and pick up the law, that's when you fall from grace because you are now taking responsibility for keeping a law to recommend yourself to God. Even if you rationalize, that's not what you're doing. As an Adventist, I rationalized I wasn't keeping the Sabbath to recommend myself to God. No, I was keeping it to prove something. (laughs) Well, what's the difference? Just the choice of verb I used, actually. I was still doing something so that God would notice I was sincere. So then in the case of the true believer who's deceived and led astray into law-keeping, that severed from Christ would be about relationship. Yes. I remember our friend Steve, who had been a truly born-again believer and had been essentially 
seduced into Adventism fairly early on and had been an Adventist for 15 years. And I remember him saying to us many years ago, Adventism stole my joy in Jesus for 15 years. But the Lord showed him what was wrong with Adventism and led him out. I don't believe God allows anybody who's truly His to stay in the darkness of a false religion, even if they've been deceived into it. But He will redeem that. He will use that experience for His glory. But Steve actually used those words. It stole my joy in the Lord. I would love to know, and maybe you know, and I can ask him. If not, was Steve seeking to be justified by the law when he went into Adventism, or was he deceived? He was deceived. I would say 100% I get that. I think anyone who is seeking justification by the law intentionally, knowingly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has not come to believe. I think that's true. And that was also something that Pastor Gary said in his um, teaching through this chapter. He said, Paul is afraid, referring back to chapter 4, that if these people are going back to the law and taking up days and months and seasons and years and food laws, Paul feared that they might not have been saved. He says, I fear I've labored over you in vain. Mm. He said, it's possible that they weren't ever saved if they embraced the law so willingly. So he's calling on them, trust Jesus. And here in his classic way, Paul says, if you don't, you have fallen from grace. And I want to appeal to all of my fellow former Adventists and those who are maybe not former, but are still struggling with Adventism. The Sabbath cannot be separated from the rest of the law. And if you insist on keeping it because God declared it to be the Sabbath, it's only declared to be the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. And it still is the Sabbath from a Jewish perspective because that's the place the Sabbath is given. But the fact is, in Christ, as you said earlier, Nikki, come unto me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. And in that same passage in Matthew, he goes from that appeal into the next chapter where he says to the Pharisees who accuse him of breaking the Sabbath with his disciples, one greater than the temple is here. Jesus himself contains everything in himself that the temple had, including the law and Sabbath rest. Everything the temple represented to Judaism is now in Christ fulfilled in person, fleshed out and real. And in Him we have rest. Holding on to the Sabbath because it's in the Ten Commandments puts you under the curse of the law. And remember, if you're going to keep the Ten Commandments and you're going to keep the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments, you better use a lunar calendar. Absolutely, because it's always associated and figured with the new moons. So Paul contrasts those who are seeking to be justified by the law with us, believers, who through the Spirit and by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Colleen, I'd love to talk for a minute about that word, hope. Please. (laughs) Because I know the Adventists use that word a lot. We have this hope. Yes. They have a wish. They have a desire, a longing Mm -hmm. that they hope will be fulfilled. In Christianity and in the clear teaching of Scripture, this hope that Paul's referring to, it has substance. It's not a wish. It's not a longing. It's an expectation. Hebrews makes it very clear that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Yeah. We have an assurance. We have a future. We know that because we trust the Word of God. 
That's how we came to faith. And that same word tells us that we have an inheritance, that we have come to Mount Zion, that we have a future with the Lord in eternity. And we're waiting for that. We have eternal life now, but in part. And so here we wait by faith through the power of the Spirit, who keeps us, by the way, that's First Peter chapter 1, yes. keeps us by the power of God through faith. We're waiting for that hope of righteousness. Now, positionally, we're made righteous in Christ, but this is speaking of that final moment. <laughs> when we lose these mortal bodies and get the glorified body of the resurrection. Yes. And as we wait, we do so with assurance. Hope, which is a certainty. Then he says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. What I want to say is this doesn't say that Israel means nothing to him anymore. (laughs) That's not what this is saying. Mm -mm. This is saying that you have no benefit or detriment whether you're circumcised or not. That has nothing to do with your standing before God. Faith working through love is what we're going to move into now as Paul begins to teach what the normal life of the Christian is. We don't need to be circumcised. We don't need to keep the 10 commandments and the 613 commandments and all that God commanded of Israel. We have a different way now. We have a different order. And Paul's going to go into that as we continue to move through this letter. And you know, I have to say, there was an article in the Adventist Review from April 22. 2022, (laughs) just last month. The author of this article was explaining in his way that he didn't believe that perfection was really possible for a person, which in itself is contrary to what Ellen White says. Mm -hmm. But he was saying that, and he was saying that now we can see that the Ten Commandments are helpful pointers of things that we need to work on with the power of God, but that the new commandment over which the Ten Commandments are laid is the new commandment of love. And he said the Ten Commandments are like ornaments on a Christmas tree. Love is the Christmas tree, and the Ten Commandments are the ornaments, and you can't remove them from the love. And I want to say (laughs) that is completely inside out and backwards. When Jesus gave his disciple a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you, he was saying that to his disciples who trusted him fully. And they were going to go out and take that gospel of his salvation, of his death, burial, and resurrection to the world. That love that is Christ's command is the love that believers who are born again and given a new heart have. People who are still in the domain of darkness are not able to love with the love of God. They're not able to love as Christ loved. So, it's inappropriate to say that the Ten Commandments hang on a tree of love because the Ten Commandments were given to depraved Israel who needed to know they were depraved, who needed to be pointed to a Savior who would come and be sufficient for them. They served a purpose that was a sign and a shadow pointing to the fulfillment who is Jesus. And in Jesus, love becomes a reality. It doesn't become something we strive to muster up from our hearts. Love is only possible for the born again. And when we are in Christ, the Ten Commandments are fulfilled in Him. We have only Him and His Spirit living out Christ's love in us. And I just have to say, before we close... I am not surprised that we as former Adventists were so confused about these issues because Ellen White completely 
contradicts this passage, where Paul says in verse 5 that if anyone seeks to be justified by the law, they've fallen from grace. Listen to this quote of hers from Review and Herald. This is from February 8, 1898. She's saying about Jesus's death on the cross, it was the transgression of the law of God that made this suffering necessary. And yet, men harbor the thought and give expression to the suggestions of Satan through those who trample upon the law of God that all this suffering was to make the law of non-effect. Deceived and blinded by the great transgressor, they tell the people that there is no law or that if they keep the commandments of God in this dispensation, they've fallen from grace. What a delusion is this that Satan has fastened upon human minds. Nikki, she is completely contradicting the gospel in the New Testament. She's using the very phrase fallen from grace and saying, no, you can't say that if you keep the law, you've fallen from grace. That's a lie from Satan. And yet that is exactly what Paul is telling us. And this is the spirit of prophecy for the Seventh-day Adventist organization. She is the woman who tells them how to understand scripture. And they believe that God sent her this message. Yes, they do. She says this not in just one place. There's one other from her fourth volume of Letters and Manuscripts from 1885, where she says, this is a little quote out of a longer paragraph, about Christian teachers who are teaching the gospel and saying the law is fulfilled in Christ. And she says this of them, all they have to do is to believe, believe. The keeping of the commandments is altogether unnecessary. And if they keep them, they're under a yoke of bondage. They have fallen from grace. And then she goes on, what a blessed freedom to the sinner this no law system is. Its benefits cannot really be estimated by those who keep God's commandments. She's mocking Christian teachers who teach the true gospel. Mm -hmm. And I've heard Adventists say, well, Christians just have Christ. We have the full gospel. We have the Sabbath. We have the food laws. We have the blessed hope of the second coming. And I just want to say, take the words of Scripture to mean what they say. A person who tries to hold on to the law has not understood the freedom that Jesus spoke about that you quoted from Matthew 11, Nikki. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. The law can only curse you to death, and if you try to keep any part of it, you'll be under that curse of death. Come unto me, Jesus says, and if you haven't, come unto him. If you still are holding the Sabbath in one hand and soy meat in the other, please read Galatians and know that God is asking you to trust Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Everything you need for life and godliness is in his word, and the Lord Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary for your justification and your sanctification. Let go of those lingering Klingons from the law. It'll feel like stepping off a cliff, but you won't know until you step off that cliff that Jesus will catch you. You will not fall. And you will discover eternal life in the freedom of knowing God is your Father, Jesus is your Savior, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, convicting you of how to live. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit proclamationmagazine.com to view our online articles and to sign up for emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. You can also find a donate tab there as well if you'd like to come alongside Life Assurance Ministries with your financial support. 
Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and please leave a review and share it with your friends. And join us next week as we continue through Galatians chapter 5 with a discussion on false teachers. And we'll see you then.